wonderful time of worship. Amen. You are blessed uh, here at uh, Burlington to have such great worship leaders. Uh, just to let you know, um, my name is Nick Sandifer. I'm from the Kentucky Baptist Convention. I serve 400 churches, and the Lord has given me the opportunity to serve you all uh, for an extended period of time. Uh, Lord willing, uh, I will be your interim pastor until you call uh, your permanent pastor. Uh, and uh, I make this commitment to you. I will preach Bible-based sermons each week. Uh, I will pray for you. Uh, I, will, I will make myself available to you on Mondays, uh, especially in the morning, uh, Sunday afternoons. If you uh, need someone uh, to help in a ministry you're working on or just uh, some prayer, you can shoot that to me and I'll pray for you. I hope to make some friends and I hope to remember some names. Uh, that's my goal. I told everybody it'll take about four times, and so now I'm doubting myself. It might take a few more than that. Uh, but uh, I, it, Lord willing, I'll be here with you. Now, if we're going to serve together, you need to get to know me a little bit, okay? And I introduced my family to you last time. I have a wife, Kelly, two kids, and I won't go into that, but you'll hear a lot about them. That's just part of it. You have to live with that. You know, it's like a grandparent with their grandbabies. You know, you just... People got to know what to expect. But anyhow, uh, I, uh, I want you to know a little bit about my, my life uh, before I get into my message today. I, I wasn't raised in a Christian home. I was uh, raised with wonderful parents. I mean, they loved God, or loved me. They just didn't love God. I, I don't think it was like uh, an anti-God thing. We had a white Bible in my house, I remember. Um, and my dad liked to sometimes listen to old Southern gospel records, and I'm talking really, really old Southern gospel records, like 1930 type of Southern gospel, 1930, 1940, but early, early Blackwood Brothers uh, stuff. Uh, and sometimes on Sunday mornings, my dad would get that out and listen to it. I remember him doing that two or three times in my life. But really, I didn't have much Christian upbringing there was an 80-year-old couple in our community who stopped by one day and asked if they could take me to church. And so uh, my parents let them. They weren't against church. They just didn't really want any part of it. And so they let them take me in a country church of about 40 people in Henderson County, Kentucky. God gripped my heart after a couple years of faithfully hearing the gospel preached, and I gave my heart and life to Christ. Uh, I wasn't perfect by any means, but I know that Christ came to live in my life, and he saved me. Uh, and uh, after about... I don't know, about four years, I realized that there was more to following Jesus than just getting baptized. And so uh, God began to speak to my heart. And really, uh, in, in a story I'll tell you one day, I'm sure, he called me to preach, and I know it. I, I just knew he had a calling on my life. I was about almost 17 at the time. And I became a youth minister at 18 and a half, and then uh, became a pastor at 20 years old, served small church of about 13 folks. Six of them should have been institutionalized. Uh, I, th I think I told y'all that the last time here. I'm not joking. <laughs> uh, but, but the Lord was gracious, and that church grew to about, uh, about 100 before I left, and there's still about 100, and that's been almost 20 years ago uh, when I left there. Uh, went to a small country church church. Uh, served there uh, for five years and went to Hopkinsville and served in church. It's so similar to Burlington. It just amazes me how similar, real laid back, just really good folks, multi-generational, 
multi-services. We had four services and three small group times uh, on Sundays. We had relocated to a new campus, and God had really blessed. We had, you know, we're running, I guess 850 was our average, and on Easter we could hit 12, 13, maybe even 1,400 people. And so, uh, you know, just loved the church there, and then God called me to go to the KBC, and I was thinking, oh, Lord, no. <laughs> I really love it here, but I knew it was what was best not only for me, but also for Edgewood. Uh, Hopkinsville, Edgewood, and so uh, that's uh, that, that's what I did. Uh, you know, a lot of, a lot has changed since I got into ministry. You know, I mean, 25 years. Do you realize I did not have a cell phone my first year in ministry? There was no such thing. I was rocking the bag phone in year two, but my first year there was no such thing as a cell phone. There was really no internet. My word processor was a typewriter. Uh, my first computer that I got in about my second year of being a pastor had the paper you remember with the holes along the side that fed it through that way. So I've been in ministry a little while now, and times have changed in that uh, span of being in ministry. Um, you know, when I was in my first church, I didn't have the luxury of having all these staff folks. You know, I was the custodian. Uh, I was the... Um, youth minister. I was the secretary. I was the maintenance man. I was the lawn uh, care person, you know, and in real pinch, I'd lead the music, you know. <laughs> and so, that, I mean, I, I wore a lot of hats at this church. Well, I've been at this church about three months, I guess, uh, and long enough to know that I like to have fun, and I like to pick, and we kind of had that back and forth. You know, and I'd been there about three months, and I was on my way up to my office. Now, to explain this, they'd never had a pastor in this church who had ever wanted an office, but I didn't want to have that myth that preachers just worked on Sundays and Wednesdays, and they didn't do anything the rest of the time. So I was going to keep set office hours in this church of 13 people. So I, I'd cleaned out literally a closet upstairs, and we put together a desk inside of it. You know why? because we couldn't get it in there any other way. And I did have a window. There was a tree right in front of it, but I had a window, and I loved spending time with God up in the office there. I'd prepare my sermons. I'd pray for the people, pray for the community. And, and well, anyway, it was on the second floor, and so nobody ever came by to see me. Our folks, you know, six of them, you know, and then the other folks were, were really not able to get up the stairs real well. So if they wanted to tell me something, you know, it was before cell phones and whatnot, they would, we had a cork board on the landing area going up to the second store. Y'all with me? Now, they would put stuff on there. Hey, preacher, they'd only walk halfway up the steps. They wouldn't come all the way to my office. They'd put stuff on this cork board. Well, one day I was walking up there, going into the office. I had coffee in one hand. And my, I think my Bible or a, a briefcase or something in the other hand. And I was, I was walking up, and I looked on the corkboard, and there was something on there. And I thought, somebody's messing with me. I thought they'd put a little fuzzy animal up there on the corkboard. And so I'm walking up there, and I'm about to reach up and grab it, and the Holy Spirit warned me. There's something wrong here. And so I put my briefcase down. Should have put the coffee down. I put my briefcase down, and I touched it, and that thing spread its wings... A bat about the size of the offering plate spread its wings. Well, I was scared to death. I didn't know what to do. And, and so I did what a man who's 21 years old who doesn't know what to do does. I called a woman. <laughs> I, I called a 40-year-old lady in our church, and I said, Sheila, I said, I have no idea what to do. There's a bat in here. Do you have a fishing net? Now, for those of y'all who know anything about bats, that was a bad idea. I got this fishing net, and I put it over the bat and scraped it down off the thing, and that bat got tangled up all 
kinds of ways, and I tried and tried to get it out, and I couldn't, and animal activists, please don't get on me, but I beat it to death with a broom. I didn't know what else to do. <laughs> I just didn't know what to do. But, but I learned something that day. Knowing whether or not something is dead or alive is a handy piece of information. And that's not only true of a bat on a court board, that's true of your spiritual life as well. You need to know whether or not you are dead or alive. A person comes alive by putting their faith and trust in Jesus, rejecting the world's way of putting your faith in yourself and putting your faith in Christ. See, there's nothing we can do to save ourselves, and that's why we call it grace. You see, I don't believe in karma. There is no such thing. I believe you reap what you sow, but here, karma says you get what you deserve. Grace says Christianity says Jesus took what we deserved. He took the wrath that we deserved because of our sin. He took it on himself. He paid the price for us on the cross, and he set us free to live a new life in Christ. Now, what I want you to understand this morning is, is this new life, it, it doesn't just happen when you walk into church and you come forward or you believe or you get baptized. It doesn't just happen like that. It, it starts there. That's when God puts his seed inside of you. That's when he puts his Holy Spirit inside of you. That's when he washes you of your sin. But life change it is a process. Now, I know you're Americans, and that means you don't like that. You don't like that because we don't like diet plans. We like diet pills. We want things to happen in an instant. We want change to happen immediately. But God has chosen to redeem us. It starts in an instant. It always begins in an instant. But there will always be more changing to take place in your life. I want to tell you, I will testify today, I'm not there. I'm not all the way where I need to be. See, we're going to talk about this in the months to come, but, but God saved you so that you would look like his son Jesus. And when other people looked at you, he wants them to see Jesus in you. And when you get saved, that process of becoming like Jesus starts, we, and we don't go to heaven because we look like him. We go to heaven because we trust in him, but God starts changing you. And, and, and here's the deal. You're going to be changing until you die. And then the Bible says something like, in the twinkling of an eye, we will all be changed. Changed into what? To where when people look at us, they just say, man, that's just like Jesus. That's beautiful. And so there's always going to be more changing to take place. But, but how does God change us? That's one of the things I want to talk about today. How does God pull off this great change in our life? Uh, well, there's lots of things he does, but in my life, one of the things that God has done is, is he has involved me in what he's doing. God changes me by getting me involved in his work. You listen to people who've really taken a step forward. You know, they went from sitting in a pew to really serving. They went from just being kind of a nominal Christian to a person who's alive in Christ. You listen to them, and they almost all say the same thing. You know, I just wasn't doing much, and then God just kind of led me to do something, and, and, and I, I don't know. I said yes. They told me about a need in the children's department. I started teaching children, and through those children, God started changing me. Or I heard about a mission trip, and I went on that mission trip, and, man, it just flipped my world upside down. Or I was, I, I was just, I, I got involved in working with teenagers, and, boy, that really changed me. You know, or I, I got, <laughs> you know, God just changed me by getting me involved. And he, he does that so often often uh, in our life. You know, uh, I want to guarantee you this. If 
you are a follower of Jesus Christ. And I say if because people can fake it. Just because you come to church don't mean you believe. We sing that song about there's no other name than Jesus and Jesus. Is, that, just because you sing a song doesn't mean you believe. Your faith is in the heart. You, you know if you believe. If you're a believer today and you really trust in Christ and he is your Lord and he is your Savior, that, then there will be times that God will call you to do things that are beyond your ability. And the reason he does it is because that's how he grows you. You learn to depend on him when he calls you to do something that you don't know how to do. This is the way God always works. He might lead you to go to the prison or help in a food shelter or teach in English as a second language class or, or even to preach. He may ask you to go on a mission trip, or you may be led to adopt a child from a third world country, or, or you may be led to, 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 to lead a Bible study. You know, it's exciting to think that God might include you in his work. But you know what I found? Whenever God asks me to do something, there's another feeling besides it exciting that goes on. You ever have that feeling? You know that feeling that goes, like a too strong breath mint? <laughs> like, you really want me to do that? When God involves you in his work, you almost always feel tension. And this tension usually shows up in a few ways. You know, it shows up sometimes in the form of fear. You know, Lord, what if, what, what if I, it doesn't work? What if, I, what, what if I make a mistake? What if I look like a doofus? That's a Greek word, by the way, D-U-F-U-S. You know, what, what, if I, what if I look like someone who doesn't know what they're doing? And then we feel inadequate. You know, we, we, we are... We don't know who I am to teach other people or what gives me the right to go on a mission trip and why should I? And, and then, to be honest, there's the pressure of the 24-7 rule, right? I mean, we've all got it. We've only got so much time in our days and, you know, most of us live these hectic lives and we can't think about God asking us to do something else. I mean, we already have a boss. We have a spouse. We have kids. We, the PTO's nipping at our heels like a little chihuahua. You know, we've got all of those things going on in our life and and it's like, there's no way that I have time for that. Here's, here's my guess. You have had times in your life where God has asked you to do something where you felt that pressure internally. And I want to confess to you today, so you'll kind of know the deal, I'm not above those same feelings of, really, God? I was sitting in my office two and a half years ago at Edgewood in Hopkinsville. And uh, I got a phone call from Mike Jones, the pastor of Marion Baptist Church. Anybody know where Marion's at? Hey, two guys. All right, Marion's a small town between Henderson and Paducah on Highway 60 um, in western Kentucky. I'd led a uh, men's retreat there, and that went pretty well. And so they asked me to come back and kind of preach in a, another setting, kind of a little more church-wide there, kind of a pump-you-up rally. And then... You know, then Mike, I, when Mike called me the first time to lead the men's retreat, I said, Mike, I tell you what, I'll come if you let me bring my band. Now, our band was like y'all's band, just really good, and you appreciate them, and there's a lot of, and I said, I'll bring my band. Well, the next time I came, he said, Nick, will you bring your band? Well, he calls me this third time, and he, he wants me to do a marriage retreat. And then he says, will you bring your band? Now, I know what was really going on. He really just wanted the band to come, but he didn't know how to invite them without inviting me. <laughs> But he asked me to do this marriage retreat, and something happened inside of me where I was going, Whoo, I don't know if I ought to do that. One, I'd never led a marriage retreat before. Two, I have a great marriage, but I'll be honest with you. It's not because I know everything there is to know about marriage. I have a great marriage because I have a great wife. 
That's why. And what am I going to say at this marriage retreat? I tell you what, guys, you want to have a great marriage, you better marry well. And if you didn't, sorry about your luck. You know, I mean, that, that doesn't fly, <laughs> you know. And so this, this pressure starts rising within me. And then I'm thinking, man, I've got 14 things to preach on in the next few months. I've got these conferences. I've got this. I don't have time to do this. But I felt God leading me to do this. But every part of me wanted to say no. But finally, I just blurted out and said, all right, Mike. I'll bring my band, you know, and uh, uh, I was way out of my comfort zone. God was gracious, and he strengthened my walk with God because I said yes. But the problem is the tension when you feel it, and even sometimes when I felt it, sometimes we say no. You ever been there? Sometimes we do. Well, that's a big deal, bigger than you know. It's not just because God can't feed hungry people without you. It's not just because God can't get a ministry done if you don't do it. It's because if you don't get involved, you won't grow and become what you're supposed to be in Christ. I don't know of a better illustration of this than the feeding of 5,000 in Matthew chapter 14. So if you have your Bibles... Turn there. Now, you might be saying, okay, preacher, I get it. I've heard the feeding of 5,000 stories since I was a little kid. Uh, you know, don't, please don't check out on me because in the middle of this story, I think we have a statement that is extremely relevant to this feeling that we have. Okay? So let's dig in. Matthew chapter 14, verse 13. When Jesus heard about it. Now, you are supposed to be Bible-believing Christians. If you read that phrase, you should have a question in your mind. Do y'all remember a couple weeks ago I said Baptist or what? Anybody remember by nature? Skeptical. Did I say that to y'all? Baptists are skeptical. I did in one of the services probably. Baptists are skeptical by nature. So you're supposed to ask, what's the it? Well, the it was John the Baptist had just been murdered. John the Baptist, if you remember, was Jesus' cousin. They met before they were born in the womb. Jesus, uh, uh, when Jesus appears before uh, Elizabeth while he's still in Mary's womb, you remember that John the Baptist leaps inside the womb for joy because there's something special, and they had this special relationship. And Jesus recognized that John the Baptist was awesome. He said, there's not been a man born among women that's greater than John the Baptist. And he was an amazing man who led people to deeper uh, gratitude to God and ultimately to faith in Jesus when he said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Well, John the Baptist and Herod get crossways. Herod's the ruler of the day. They, they get crossways because Herod's having an inappropriate relationship with a family member. Well, John, John started making that his favorite sermon illustration, and that doesn't go over too well <laughs> with Herod. And so Herod through, uh, puts him in prison and through a, a series of events has him beheaded. And the Bible says when Jesus heard about it, he withdrew from there by boat to a remote place to be alone. Why? Because remember, Jesus was just like us. He was 100% God, which is different than us, but he was 100% man, which is just like us. And so he was grieving. You know, I don't know why he was grieving. Maybe he was grieving because John the Baptist was dead and he just loved him. Maybe he was grieving because Herod would be so sinful that he would do such a thing. I don't know exactly why, but he, he goes to this place 
uh, to be alone. And, and, and the Bible says that, that even though he goes to this place, the crowds follow him. Now, if you're reading closely, there's something strange here. The last verse said that he got in a boat, and this verse says that they followed him on foot. Well, if you've ever been to Israel, and when we were singing about Jesus, boy, scenes of Israel were just flying through my mind. I, I got to go there a couple of years ago. The Sea of Galilee's not real big. You can stand on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee on a large hill, and you can see the entire deal. It's not a great big area. And so my guess is Jesus kind of went across a corner of the Sea of Galilee. The crowds are kind of following along the coastline and watching where he goes, and they follow him on foot. Well, the, the next verse tells us uh, that, that when Jesus steps ashore, he sees this crowd and he feels compassion for them and he heals the sick. Uh, one, praise the Lord, Jesus never gets tired of helping those in need. You know, Two, you ever thought about how strange that last statement is? And he healed the sick? I mean, I mean just let that settle in for a second. Can you imagine being so used to Jesus doing this kind of miracle that you just write it down like, and he healed the sick? If I saw one healing, uh, miraculous healing, where a, a man who can't walk gets up, or a man who's got a withered hand stretches it out, or a man who's blind and his eyes sees, if I saw one of those deals, I'm going to write about that the rest of my life. Matthew's seen so many of these things, and he just says, oh, yeah, he healed some people. You know, that's kind of the way things go. I mean, in, uh, John, remember what John says at the end of the book of John? He says, if the whole world were filled with books, I don't suppose that would be enough to write down all of the stories of which Jesus did while he was on earth. You know, but here Matthew just says, well, he, he, he healed some folks. And here's where, uh, you know, things get interesting. When evening came, the disciples approached him and said, you know, this place is a wilderness. And it's already late. You need to send the crowd away so they can go to the villages and get some food. Now, I, I, I might be taking license here, but I really don't know if the disciples cared about the large crowd that's hungry. I'm pretty sure the disciples cared that they were hungry. <laughs> you know, Lord, you need to send these folks away because, you know, we're they need some food. Have you ever noticed how we can spiritualize our sinfulness? You know, I'm just... I just want to know so I can know how to pray for you better. You know, we can make things sound the way we want them to sound sometimes, you know, and my guess, that's probably what's going on here. And, and there's where the story gets really rich. Verse 16. I don't need to go away. What's that, Thomas? Yeah, yeah, I know we're in the middle of nowhere. Yes, James, I know there's no Kroger nearby. You know, um, yeah, yeah, I know the money's tight, Philip. I get that. They don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. Now, you know what happens right here? What? You give them something to eat, and then he'll just like, but, 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 but we only have just a little bit. We're not prepared. We're not equipped. We're not able. We just have a little stuff. Sound familiar? And Jesus says, okay, 
bring what you got. Bring what you got. You see where this is going? The Lord speaks to you and you feel that somewhere between peppermint rush and brain freeze happen in your life. Oh, no. I'm afraid you're falling out of bed feeling. Oh, no. I can't. I'm not equipped. I've never been to Bible college. I don't know how to do this. I, I've never, I, I don't know what I'm doing. I've never done this. With so. And Jesus says, well, okay. Just bring me what you got. Bring me what you have. Well, and uh, you can imagine the disciples' predicament here. Because <laughs> I'll be honest, I felt that feeling where Jesus told me to do something and I didn't want to do it. I've been in church and felt that feeling. You know, maybe go to the altar when it wasn't even time to go to the altar and get on my knees before God and say, Oh, God, I'm sorry. And I'm looking around seeing if anybody else heard that voice inside of me and nobody else heard it. And, and so, you know, it's one thing for us who hear the voice and calling of God in a way that's not visible to everybody else. It's one thing for us to say, No. Can you imagine the disciples' predicament? They said, Yeah, we got two fish and some, we got some, well, bring it to me. Well, I mean, that's in a pretty tough spot, isn't it? And so they do. They bring what they have to the Lord, and of course you know what the, the, the story says. He commands the crowds to sit down on the grass. He takes the loaves and the fish. He looks up to heaven. He blesses them. He breaks the loaves. He gives them to the disciples. The disciples give them to the crowd. Uh, and, and then let's go on to the next slide. And everyone ate and was filled. And then they picked up what was left over. Uh, and then... 21. Now those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Wow. I mean, what a, what, what, what a great story. Uh, and when I read this, they did what they knew how to do. Okay, we don't know how to feed 5,000 people, but we can help people sit down on the grass. All right, we don't know how you're going to pull this off, but we can start handing out what we got. And they trusted God to do the rest. Now, there's some biblical lessons for us. You see, what's really happening in this story is we think it's a miracle about the power of Jesus, and it absolutely is, but it's also a miracle of how Jesus starts changing the disciples. Let, let, let's see these lessons. Number one, one of the lessons I want to take away from this is most of the time the person who sees the need is the person who's supposed to meet the need. Oh, 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 wait a minute, preacher, I don't meet needs. I pray for people to meet needs. Wait a minute, preacher, I'm waiting until we get another pastor so that when he comes, I can tell him about all the needs that he needs to meet. No, that's not the way it, how it works in the kingdom of God. Most of the time, the people who see the need are the ones that God will be moving to make the change. You know, you need to send these folks away. They're hungry. No, you, do, you feed them. You take care of it. Um... Yeah, and, and, and there's no exceptions to this. There will be times in your Christian journey where God says, I want you, and all of the tensions will arise. And we will make all of the excuses. I didn't finish college. I hardly know the Bible. I don't have much time. What if they ask me a hard question? You know, I don't have enough experience. I don't like to fly. You know, I'm not trained. I don't have seminary. I don't have time. I'm afraid. Listen, God's hands are not tied by our apparent limitations. If God can feed 5,000 people from a Lunchable, don't you think he can take care of what he calls you to do? Of course he can. 
So we're to obey God when he asks, not when we figure it out. Now, if this had been a Baptist church, <laughs> you know what they'd have done? They'd have formed a committee. They'd have formed a committee <laughs> to figure out whether or not it was okay to feed hungry people. Are we helping them or are we hurting them? And then what they'd have done is they'd have, they'd have had 10 training sessions on how to find food in a large crowd. And then once they found the food, they got the entire congregation together and they had a vote on whether or not it was okay to use the food for this purpose or not. There is a much better way. When you see God moving and God leads you to do something, trust him and do it. We should do what we know how to do and trust God to do what only he can do. Ah, they didn't need know how to feed 5,000 people, but they did know how to look for food. Now, they didn't know how Jesus was going to feed them, but they knew how to organize people, and so that's what they did. They did what they knew, and they left the rest up to God. Now, let's start bringing this to our world. When you feel that nudging, you know, to talk to the person next to you, to invite your neighbor to a Bible study with you, to our small group with you, to a worship service with you, to to work with middle schoolers, and that has to be God leading you to do that, you know, and uh, to, to go on a mission trip, to... Uh, to, to be a big brother to a kid who just doesn't have anyone in his life. When you feel that nudging, it's a big, huge moment in your life because there's a lot riding on that response. Number one, people's needs are met. I mean, I, I don't want to overstate this, but, but God uses people to meet needs. And I want to say this for all of those who are 20 and younger in here today. Those of us older than 20 for the most of our life, have been taught church does good things. The culture's changing. And the culture is telling us that church doesn't do good things. May I remind you that churches are the ones that started the hospitals in this country. Churches are the ones that formed every orphanage in the first 13 colonies. Churches are the ones that still run the majority of the adoption services. Churches are the ones who provide hunger relief in our inner cities. Churches are the ones that started 107 of the first 108 universities in this country. Churches are the ones that care for the poor in the inner city. Now, I, I, I want to set the record straight. God uses churches, but I want you to hear this. God doesn't need us. God can drop manna from heaven to feed hungry people. I mean, he's done it before. He can do it again. God can take care of, 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 of whatever he wants to do. If we cease to exist tomorrow, God will still accomplish his purpose. He just chooses to use us. And here's the question of the day, and we're going to start, start wrapping this together. Why? If God can do whatever he wants, you know, in bewitched style... You know, <laughs> those of you who are old enough, yeah, you got to fold your arms, right? <laughs> if he can just speak it, and it can happen, and I'm not trying to make light of our awesome creator. I'm just trying to tell you, if we think that's just poof out of nothing, if God can do that, why does he choose to use us? I think that's a legitimate question. And I think the answer is this. When God involves you in his work, you never forget. Ever. This changed the disciples' life. Did you know that in the Bible, 
there are only two miracles that are recorded in all four of the stories about Jesus' life. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The resurrection of the dead, Jesus. His resurrection from the dead and the feeding of 5,000 people. Now, I've thought about why. Why, why. why the feeding? I mean, really, I mean, there's cooler miracles. You know, I mean, there's bigger miracles. I mean, the Bible says that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead after four days, and then I love the way the King James Version says, after he stinketh. You know, I mean, that's a pretty big miracle. Bodies decaying, he raises him from the dead. I mean, you're talking about a cooler miracle. I mean, to a middle schooler, pigs flying off the cliff whenever Jesus, woo, you know, I mean, that, that's, why wouldn't that stick with you? Why did this stick out in their mind? And I've thought about that. Have you ever imagined the disciples' predicament when Jesus says, okay, break. Y'all go feed them. I mean, I imagine they get out their knives and they're taking like, that first group, they're taking scales and giving just a piece. After you get to about group 20 and it's not running out, can you, oh man, yeah, here, whoo, you know. I mean, by the time you're toward the end, they're flipping fish behind their back. You know, I mean, they, you know, that, their faith grows, Right? Here's why I believe that this story is included in all four of the Gospels. Because when they were involved, they never forgot. You know, there's times in my life where God has used me. When I was in Gote, a little village in Niger, West Africa. There's no doubt in my mind that God used us. Niger is 99.8% Muslim. We asked the missionary who was living in Niamey, the capital city, how many should we plan for in Bible school that we're going to go do in Gote? And he said, plan for 30. That would be awesome. We planned for 100, believing God. 900 kids showed up that morning. Uh, it's a story for another day. But I know God... I have a friend, his name's Jason Clark. One night I was youth minister at 18 years old, had no idea really what I was supposed to be doing, but I had a young man who was 15 show up on my doorstep at 11 o'clock at night. I was living in a house by myself there in a little town called Maceo, Kentucky, as youth minister. And um, he shows up and says, Nick, I believe God's called me to preach. And every part of me wanted to say, well, you need to go tell Scott, but I felt God, as our pastor, every part of me heard God saying, you need to sit down and talk to this young man and pray with him right now. I mean, this is like 11 o'clock at night, he bangs on my door. And I go outside, and I sit down, and I talk to him, and I pray with him. And to this day, in his testimony, he says that God used that night to confirm that he was calling him. He's, by the way, pastor of First Baptist Church of Athens, Tennessee, right now, and God is using him in mighty ways. Um, I can tell you about the time I led a marriage retreat. And halfway through that marriage retreat, I had about a 60-year-old man. He, was about, he looked like a bantamweight fighter. He was about 140 pounds, soaking wet, looked like the marble man. He was about 60 years old, just scrappy, wiry little dude, and he came up crying. He said, my wife told me this is our last-ditch effort, and we're done after today. We were halfway through the retreat, and I said, well, have her come over here and let's talk together. And he said, she said, she's not talking to you. She's done after today. You're talking about really knocking your confidence in the marriage retreat. Boy, I'm halfway done, and I've convinced her she's out, you know. <laughs> and uh, 
that was on my heart and mind. I, in fact, at the break, I just got beside my, by myself and I just said, Oh, God, would you please do a work? At the end of that marriage conference, a lady came up to me. She was probably 55, and she was crying. She said, I came in today, and I was done. took me a second before I saw this little six-year-old man standing behind her. They agreed to meet with me in my office. They were from a different town, and they agreed to come down and meet with me. And as far as I know, they're still married today. I've never forgotten that I, every part of me wanted to say no. But because I said yes, God grew me and used me. And that strengthens our relationship with Jesus. You know, I, this feeding of 5,000 was the high point of Jesus' ministry, but people are so fickle. In John chapter 6, they tell this story. And Jesus, he feeds 5,000 people. And you'd think that he'd be a rock star and it would be a big deal. But he stands up and he says, I'm not here to feed your belly. I'm here to change your life. I'm here to make you like me. And you're going to have to shed your blood like I shed my blood. And you're going to have to have your body broken like my body will be broken. And if you don't want a part of that, then you're not going to have a part of the kingdom of God. And at that point, the Bible says many of his disciples turned back and said, we're done. And then... You're talking about verses that get me emotionally. Here it is. Jesus turns to the 12 and he says, You next? I don't know if it's because I was on athletic teams and I know there's a bond, or I was in Fort Campbell where, you know, the, bond, uh, the band of brothers, the, the military guys were at. I don't know what it is, but something about this, when Jesus looks to the guys and says, Are y'all checking out too? Man, that just hurts me. And I love what Simon Peter says. He said, Lord, where are we going to go? Yeah, we find bread, but you're the only one that has eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you're the Holy One of God. Let me ask you this question. Do you think that their involvement in ministry helped them come to believe? You said, go, Lord, and we said yes, and their faith grew. I believe that's how God works in all of us. I think that's how he wants to work in you. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the opportunity to share your word today. God, I pray that you would use this time to bring glory to yourself and uh, to help people step out and follow you in whatever you'd have them to do. God, I pray that you would lead people to what you want in their lives. Lord, I ask, Lord, that uh, it would be clear. And Lord, when the devil sends those feelings of inadequacy or we just own them ourselves, God, I pray we would acknowledge today you're greater than our fears. God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Here's what's going to happen. We're going to have a time where we do business with God. Some of you here, maybe you have never responded in faith to Jesus Christ, and you feel that feeling all the time, like there is no way that I'm going to publicly tell people I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Would you today trust that God can give you the strength to do what he wants you to do? Maybe you've never been baptized, and today you would like to make a commitment to be baptized. And you'll feel that feeling, I promise you. But God's grace is sufficient for you. You know, maybe you're here today and, and, and truthfully God's calling you to do big things. 
you know he is, or, or he's calling you to let go of things that have had grips on you. And maybe today you just want to come to the altar and pray. I, I, I'm a believer in, in opening the altar to people if they want to pray. You're welcome to come to the altar and pray. If you want to talk to somebody, I'll be glad to pray with you. Uh, one of your deacons will be here uh, willing to pray for you, uh, and uh, you're, you're, you're welcome to come. But we're going to stand. We're going to have a time of invitation. We're going to give you this time. You can come and, and participate in communion if you would like to at this time. But if God speaks to you, we're going to let you come. Uh, do business with God. I don't draw things out. But right now, we're going to stand. You need to come. Come right